0: You are listening to the Wealth Formula podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey, the Wealth Formula podcast, and I want to remind you first and foremost to go to wealthformula.com and pick up all of the resources available to you, including my best selling book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which you can uh, download with a just buy, just download from your computer. You don't have to buy it; you can just download it. By the way, I was just thinking about, um, as I mentioned that, that I have this cool new toy I bought myself for my birthday, um, which is called a uh, remarkable tablet. You should guys go check it out. I don't have like, you know, I don't have a link or anything, but just Google it. It's, it's cool because I used to have to print out all these notes and stuff like that I have, but this is like, um, it's, it's like a tablet, but it actually, you can write on it and you, and you can upload all your PDFs and it. The best part is it looks just like paper. It feels just like paper. And I'm a paper guy, so this is really cool. Anyway, that was not a paid uh, advertisement. That was just me telling you about my fun toy. Uh, anyway, the um, I also want to remind you uh, that there is a course that you should check out called uh, Your Roadmap to Real Wealth. And that course was done Uh, by me along with a number of my uh, friends and colleagues, uh, uh, like the real estate guys, uh, Tom Wheelwright, uh, Ken McElroy, uh, Dean Graziosi, a bunch of really smart guys, uh, helped me create this course, and um, we did it out in Phoenix in a studio. It was a big deal. Um, You can check that whole thing out on uh, wealthformularoadmap.com. Uh, Also, along with that course, which is um, uh, which is in and of itself is a great foundation. If you're into this show, you're going to really enjoy the fact that in addition to that course, there is an entire community behind this called the Wealth Formula Network. The Wealth Formula Network includes uh, well, we have a forum with additional content. We also have a Facebook group that is um, is fun. It's just a good place to exchange ideas and. Perhaps the most uh, popular element of Wealth Formula Network is our bi-weekly call, a bi-weekly mastermind call, which basically is an open forum for like-minded individuals to communicate with one another. We have topics. Sometimes we have guests. We've had Kevin Day on with us. We've had, uh, I think we had Damian Lupo uh, with uh, to- Total Control Financial, on there talking about all the things that we, a lot of these things that we talk about on the podcast, but in a private safe setting. So uh, again, check that out. com. If you're liking the show and you want to go dig a little deeper in, that's how you do it. Also, if you have not yet checked it out, make sure you check out the new crypto show, Consensus Network. It's pretty awesome. Um, you know, we had a first uh, first few shows. Uh, I don't know exactly when we're going to air this particular one, but we've had uh, the first one was me giving the basics of crypto. Then, then I had Tika on Tika Tawari part one, part two. We've had a couple news sessions. Um, anyway, lots of fun there. Make sure you check that out because if you like my style of teaching, if you're interested in crypto, go to Consensus Network. And checked out it as well. Now, on to today's topic. The subject of this is trust fund rats and behavioral pseudocles, which I thought was kind of catchy. I liked it. Um, But let me give you some background on what this is all about. So, you know, it's very hard to become an entrepreneur uh, without any life experience. I believe that to be the case. And I know it doesn't seem that way when you look at guys like Mark Zuckerberg, Or some of these other, you know, teenage tech superstars uh, who, you know, became super famous and successful shortly after puberty. But in reality, most of the entrepreneurs that I know spent some time, maybe even a lot of time, working for others after school, learning the ropes until one day they found an idea, right? They found an inefficiency in the system that became a business idea. Or maybe it wasn't even a business idea or inefficiency. Maybe they just looked at their boss and said, this guy's making a lot more money than me and I'm doing all the work. I could do this. I've seen it over and over. And gosh, it makes sense. We learn what we are exposed to. And if you aren't exposed to it, there's no way you can learn about it. So you know, no wonder all these great ideas and great business owners come from just being exposed to this stuff. So the best chance you have at success, whether it comes to entrepreneurship or investing or whatever, is to be exposed to a lot of things. Now, one of my good buddies, as an example, has a multi, uh, multi-million multi dollar tile company, right? He's a tile company guy. Um, now, he didn't like, have a childhood dream of owning a tile company. Um, you know, he actually grew up poor, and you know, he's worked his tail off, and then he was working for a guy with a tile company, and thought, "Hey, I know how to do this business. The guy makes me do everything. I know how to do this, and he's making a lot more money than me. I'm going to do it myself, and I bet you I can make a lot more money." And guess what? He was right. Another friend of mine. Uh, This is crazy, but he worked for a Canadian company that bought energy uh, in Canada wholesale and sold it retail to other areas of Canada or other countries, basically arbitrage of energy, a significant amount of energy. Uh, He learned uh, that the business, he learned all about the business from where he was working. And he and he and a buddy of his who was working there said, hey, you know, we can do this, right? We could do this on our own. And guess what? They were right, and now they are making a lot of money. A lot. I mean, that, think of just think of the breadth of that work, right? Then there's me, right? And I uh, I worked for a cosmetic surgery company right after residency, and then realized that it wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't a very difficult business model to understand. I mean, uh, you know, I, um, I advertised. That's what they did. They advertised a lot. It was like that whole hair club model. Uh, And then they did a lot of procedures and um, they sort of did it in bulk. And since no other doctors really wanted to advertise like that or didn't know how they were way ahead. That's what I did. Uh, So or that's well, that's what the company did. And so that's what I turned around and I did it. Uh, I just figured it would work because it seemed like the model was pretty simple. And guess what? It worked. So you got three examples there. you got my two buddies, you got me. And um, what's the difference between of us, right? Well, all three of us were entrepreneurs, right? By nature, you have to have an entrepreneurial streak if you're going to be an entrepreneur. We just happen to be exposed to different things, you know, Uh, and how much we all ultimately made from those businesses really depended a lot more on the business model uh, that each of us sort of inherited as our uh, exposure rather than the execution. The execution was done fine. Based on that, um, makes me wish I worked in the energy business in Canada as a young man, but that's another story entirely. But the moral of this story is that experiences matter. Experiences matter. Okay, sounds very basic, but the more experiences you have, the greater exposure you have to all the different nooks and crannies that life has to offer, business or otherwise. I mean, in reality, I've started, you know, a few different companies and they all have come out of the fact that I knew something about that area. Right. If I if I didn't know something about cosmetic surgery or the way a cosmetic surgery business run, I wouldn't have ever been an entrepreneur in that area. So uh, so putting this, um, you know, all in perspective, uh What do you take away from this? Obviously, one is, you know, trying to get a lot of exposure and perspective to a lot of things. I mean, Warren Buffett uh, famously spends like five hours a week learning about random stuff that has nothing to do necessarily with his investments, right? Um, Let me tell you something else that I am using this for, because this is the type of stuff that I wish somebody had told me about a long, long time ago. Cause then I probably would have been stalking like, you know, billionaires and trying to figure out what they were doing at a young age rather than, um, uh, being a scut monkey in surgery. Although again, that's another issue entirely. Um, so the way I am going to teach my kids and, you know, right now they're little, right? They're nine, five and three, they're little, so. um, it's not something for them right now, but I've already got this in my head. This is my, this will be the way I, I present this, which is that a broad academic education is important. It really is. I mean, you can never go wrong with an interdisciplinary perspective. And sometimes that's hard in school, particularly for um, doctors, people who want to be pre med or whatever. You start taking courses that, You know, you're afraid you're going to get bad grades and so you don't take them. Now, this is true. I have to tell you the story. This is crazy. Most people think it's crazy. But so I was totally a, you know, molecular biology, biochemistry guy. um, And I was good at history and stuff like that, too. But there was certain things that I wanted to do that I never I I wouldn't get close to. I wouldn't take an art class because I was afraid to get like a B or C or whatever I would get in there. I never took anything um, that that was. You know that I was concerned that I would get a bad grade in, and they were the things that it seemed like others were taking because they thought they were good grades in. But um, I took like the you know, you know the absolute hardest biochemistry, you know courses, etc., just so that I could maintain you know keep getting A's because I knew I'd get A's. Um, but you know what? It's it's too bad because in retrospect, I look at all these things that I think are just fascinating right now, and I just really never, never really tried very hard. I never, I avoided them and I didn't get exposure. By the way, one of the things I avoided like the plague was economics, believe it or not. Um, I just thought it just was not something that would interest me at all. So so I stayed away from it. I, I took it as like the last course of my senior year, pass, fail, just to get it done with. And just stupid, right? I mean, I, you know, sometimes... Education is wasted on youth, uh, and and that's kind of what happened. But that's a big digression. Um, so we talk about interp- interdisciplinary perspective. So a broad education is important. Don't not take courses because you're afraid of bad grades. That's one of the things I'd tell my kids. Um, also, the other thing I'll tell my kids is after school, after college, grad school, whatever, never go look at your... Your, your job, your first job or two jobs or whatever is work. Look at them as paid education, right? And then quit if and when you have no more to gain intellectually, you're just not getting anything out of it. Use it, right? And get rid of the rest. You don't want to be one of those people who stays in the same job for 20 years and complains about 18 of them. That's just not what you want. And believe me, I am not saying... That if you love your job for 20 years, you shouldn't do it. But I, I just see so many people who are miserable. Uh, They have to they just keep going. And that's what I I, I don't want to see my own kids do. So um, and this advice that I'm give, that I'm going to give my kids is based on my own life experiences and from the life experiences of others who I know who I mentioned earlier in this podcast. But as it turns out, it's also based on science it is based on the way our brains learn and adapt and uh the more we are aware of these patterns right like the way our own brains work the way they uh that we learn the way that we succeed uh the more we can literally guide ourselves towards success right it's like programming ourselves you know like hacking your own brain to success Um, And no one knows more on this topic than my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast. Uh, You're going to love this show. So when we come back, a tour into behavioral neurobiology and how it applies to you. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to Wealth Formula Podcast, everyone. Today, my guest is Dr. Kelly Lambert. Kelly is a professor of neuroscience at the University of Richmond in Virginia, where she runs the Lambert Behavioral Neuroscience Laboratory. She's also the author of a much-anticipated book, well, now uh, it's out, I guess, uh, just recently, The Neurobiology of, uh, uh, it's called Well-Grounded, The Neurobiology of Rational Decisions. Uh, Kelly, uh, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast.
1: Oh, I'm glad to be here, Buck.
0: So uh, I want to start out a little bit uh, about sort of your background. And can you start by giving us maybe a little bit of an idea of what uh, behavioral neuroscience uh, is in particular and uh, how you got interested in it
1: right so behavioral neuroscience uh, there are really three things that we're trying to look at how they all interact the brain behavior uh, and the environment uh, so we're certainly the neuroscience part we're interested in that brain but we don't see the brain as an island it is there it evolved to interact with the environment and behavior is really the output uh, of the brain and I think is one of the most complex phenomena ever. So it's fun trying to figure that that out. Um, so you're interested in how I got interested yeah, in yeah, that? I mean, just curious, or, how, what they,
0: led, up, led up to that? Did you always kind of have an interest in how things worked and with people and the brain and that sort of thing? And, and uh, you know, obviously we share some uh, similarity in that, and I started my uh, medical career as a neurosurgical resident. Uh, right. And that sort mm-hmm. of thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, so let's, um, I mean, obviously, the, the, the answer to that is the brain is really cool. So that's why we got really into it.
1: sure in is, yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, let's, I want to talk about some specific things in your book first. Um, and you talk about our, uh, the outcomes in our lives are often contingent on our experience-guided actions. That's a mouthful, a little bit, but it's
1: yeah. there's a lot there.
0: <laughs> Can you give us a a high level explanation of what you mean by that?
1: So our brain evolved to, as I mentioned, to allow us to interact with the environment around us. So it's at one simple level, our brain is keeping us alive. As you know, we've got our medulla on our brainstem that's helping us to breathe and our glandular responses and such. But beyond that, kind of a second tier um, function is that it's keeping track with we make a response. And what that outcome is, response, outcome. So going back to the classic behaviorists, I'm trained in psychology as well as biology and neuroscience. So the J.B. Watson and the Skinner and the Pavlovs, uh, where they started to notice there's some method to um, the way behavior is reinforced. And uh, and so our brain, our circuits, and the human brain is, is really and a league all of its own when it, when we look at the density of neurons in that cortex. But it's keeping track of these responses. Uh, so that's that action outcome. You make a response that uh, Skinner Skinnerian rat pressed a bar, it got a little food pellet, um, and so it was more likely to press that bar, action, outcome. We need a clear lens and window to that environment and the authenticity of how our actions what the outcomes are in order to have this healthy action outcome contingency.
0: So you talk a little bit about neuroeconomics. Is that related to this? Is that,
1: that yeah, it is because um, that's kind of a hot area now, but neuroeconomics is involved in this decision-making. So knowing, you know, we have so many decisions in front of us every day. I mean, how do we even keep track? Just what do we order for lunch? Um, so there are certain areas of our cortex that are active when we are we move from this uncertainty shift to this is what I want or this is this response. Um, so the more classic field of neuroeconomics is looking at the particular brain areas involved to moving from uncertainty to response. So this whole book, um, this idea of our brain as a contingency calculator, and I use that a good bit, is certainly involves those areas that are involved in making decisions. But even more than that, I try to reinforce the idea that to make those informed decisions, we need to have some really great informative uh, experiences. Uh, we can't invest unless you have money to invest or resources to invest and we can't make a decision unless we've got experience. we have experiences and we can look back at our stockpile or inventory of action outcome, you know, contingencies and just, and make an informed response, but our brains just didn't drop from the sky; they were molded through our experiences from the day we were born, and will continue to be until the day we die. Uh, and those experiences are really important in informing us to make those decisions. And part of that decision making is the neuroeconomics part of
0: it. Right. So, so uh, with that theory, the you know the more exposure you have in different uh, different things in life, uh, presumably mm-hmm. the, the the better. Uh, or more favorable decisions you're going to make because you have a a wider uh, set of options to choose from or, or contingencies. In other words, you already have positive negatives in a number of areas. Um, And uh, I think a lot of us experience that in life um, uh, all the time, even, you know, even when we talk about, you know, investing and, and, and making mistakes and that sort of thing.
1: Right. Those experiences, failures and successes are incredibly important. And I think it's, very important. I'm concerned about how our life changes and how we think of prosperity being we can pay someone to do all of these experience things that our ancestors evolved to do, to forage, to find food, to build our shelters, to do all of this stuff. And, And as we seem to strive for a lifestyle sometimes where we press a button or call on someone to do that, I call that the contingency conundrum. We may be creating a world that is going to dumb down our brain yeah. in a scary kind of way. So I don't think our brain's definition of prosperity is the same as our yeah. contemporary culture definition. We we'll get
0: to that in a second, but outside of pure <laughs> luck, what qualities um, in the way a person behaves or reacts to, you know, the various stimuli out there helps to create success because obviously you can have a lot of, experience and not have a lot of success. Uh, there are some people who seem to be better at it than others. And is there, you know, whether that's uh better analysis from the prefrontal cortex of these experiences or, or, or what is there, do you have any sense of that? Or is that just kind of, you know, hypothetical, you know? Yeah.
1: Kind of I mean, I guess the scientists in me would say, how do we define success, right. but maybe related to, meaningfulness, well-being, satisfaction. Um, So if I go all brain nerd, um, a lot of those, the neurochemical that's related to that a good bit is, is, as you know, dopamine. It seems to be important in driving us toward our goals uh, and telling us what is important. Um, So having those goals seems to be important. Um, Also, I think engaging a good bit of our brain we were speaking before about um, using our hands and if if we look at engaging our brains as being healthy which may be related it's more related to well-being and health maybe than happiness but i think that it could be related to happiness i like to just sometimes i refer myself as a brain whisperer (laughs) and look at just let the brain tell us what's important if you look at you know that so much of the brain's territory is related to movement so we've yeah. got the whole, the cerebellum, 78% of our neurons are in the cerebellum. That's involved in yeah. textbook definition, motor coordination and conscious awareness, but it's a lot of movement there. And then our basal ganglia in the middle of the brain. So a lot of the territory of the brain is about movement. Hands, we have a lar- large area of our motor cortex controlling our hands. So we seem to have evolved to move around in the space and the world around us and to interact with it. So. I think that our brains are more engaged when we're interacting, when we're moving and interacting, and noted and learning from those interactions.
0: So this is actually where I first. Learned of you as I was watching CBS Sunday Morning uh, yeah. with my wife and I. I, you know, so uh, you know, a big part of, in my view, at least, of feeling uh, wealthy or successful is having that sort of inner peace. You know, obviously, it's not just a financial thing. And as you, as you know, I, I, as I mentioned it before. I'm a former surgeon, and now yes. primarily work um, uh, oddly with what I would just say, just with my brain, creating content and through analytical activity, you know, looking through investments and things like that. Um, And while most of, most of what I, you know, I don't miss uh, about most of surgery and medicine and all those things uh, uh, I don't miss, but what I do miss is having a sense of some uh, hard to explain, but a certain euphoria Mm -hmm. that I used to get during and after doing a surgical case that I can't seem to reproduce anymore. And, mm-hmm. I, and I didn't know how to characterize that, uh, but then I saw you again on the show and, and you called, uh, you used a term that I was really interested in, which was behavioral pseudocles. Uh,
1: yeah, I kind of made that up. Yeah, but. <laughs> I, love, I love
0: the term because it makes a lot of sense. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, um, because as we move, as we engage with the environment, our neurochemistry changes um, so that neurochemical dopamine that may be involved in telling us what is important and reward uh, movement repetitive movement is involved in the release of serotonin that has certainly been implicated in mood regulation if we cuddle up to someone or engage in some cooperative task. oxytocin is released as we do things such as when you were doing surgery and using your hands in a very you know informed meaningful way Um, You probably had a sense of control um, that it may be hard to simulate or mimic in other areas. A lot of my lab with my animals were studying how a sense of control and training reduces stress. So changing the neurochemistry to reduce that stress hormone, cortisol in us and and those related hormones. um, A lot of the, the chemical basis of so many psychiatric illnesses is stress. That's kind of the tipping point. So through behavior, and if it's, uh, we have to be careful about if you force someone to do it then you're, you're not going to reduce stress and you may not get this benefit, but finding something you enjoy doing or having done, cleaning house, I don't enjoy doing that, but I enjoy having done it yeah. and I have a sense of accomplishment. So you can tweak the neurochemistry in a very relevant real world way and under your own, in your own accord um, with behavior, as opposed to psychopharmaceuticals where you're putting something into the brain that is changing the neurochemistry, but not in real time with what you're doing. It's just changing it regardless of who you're sitting next to or what you're doing. So it's kind of like the psychopharmaceuticals, it's kind of like having a a tow truck, you know, that can get you around, but you don't have the autonomy of driving your car. You're just sitting on the tow truck. And so I think if we can, certainly psychopharmaceuticals are important and relevant, but if we could start with the behavior part and cognitive behavior therapy and other aspects, especially to prevent that episode of psychiatric illness where that may need to come on board. But but we can change our neurochemistry through our responses, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, kind of what you're getting at, would, would which was really interesting to me, was, you know, whether you're an employee, entrepreneur, whatever, I mean, fewer and fewer people are you know working with their hands and doing things uh like you said you know we're not out there hunting for our food we're not out there fishing and yeah. we're not mm-hmm. uh, you know we're not we're not out there you know doing things um uh, that that we probably at least from a evolutionary um uh, perspective were designed for what our physiology right. is really meant for and and we're moving further and further away from that um you 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 talked about the you know the the problems with that with, and, and I want you to talk a little bit about, about your trust fund rats, but, mm-hmm. um, but you, talk about this as a, is a something that may be contributing uh, to a collective health problem.
1: Right. So a lot of my research interest is about depression. I've written my, my first book was lifting depression. And this is, So so if you look at other medical diseases like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, as we learn more about it, we're becoming more effective at treating Uh, cardiovascular disease, deaths due to cardiovascular disease much lower than it was many years ago. Psychiatric illness, especially depression, it is not going down, it's it's, it's going up if anything. So we've got a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical industry and we're not touching it. And so some people may say, well, we have more awareness and we do, but I don't think that that's getting at that. So I like to look at all the different pieces of the puzzle in addition to just the traditional brain perspective that I have. But when you start um, about the mid part of the um, 20th century, when we started to see more service, um, people paying and having appliances and doing less uh, physical work, um, and television comes on board, and we're sitting on our rear ends more instead of the physical work. You can, there's a there's a correlation, and this is just correlational and a kind of epidemiological uh, perspective of <clears throat> depression starting to to rise. So if you ask individuals who were born before about 1950, they're less likely and fewer of them. Uh, as, they're aging, but they were less likely. Martin Seligman, I talked about this years ago, and he's known as the father of happiness research. The people born before about 1950 were a lot less likely to report ever being depressed than those that, who were born, you know, only 20 years old. And you would think, oh my goodness, these older individuals they actually li- maybe lived through the Great Depression. They've had more people, their loved ones die. They've seen so much more, um, but they weren't as likely to report being depressed. So this makes us think about lifestyle. Was there something about all these changes where we have systematically become less active, a less active society that is not um, not healthy for our brains? If, as I said in the beginning, if our brains evolved to move us around, and we're not moving around, we're not engaging in the challenges of problem solving. I mean, just. If you look at the Sears and Roebuck robot catalog and the first ones, they had the appliance or the whatever they were selling and then pages about how to fix it or repair it. None of us care. We, we don't, if sometimes to your washing machine, you don't try to fix it. Uh, or, but everyone, they had all that knowledge and they were incredibly smart and they had a sense of control over their environment. Um, so our, our lifestyle may certainly be changing our brain in, I mean, we challenge our brain through technology and, and we can sit and look at a screen and such, but we may need another push, a more physical push to keep that brain active. Yeah, so as far as some psychiatric illness go and depression, yeah. I think our lifestyle really influences it.
0: Yeah, people people don't believe me when I tell them this, this is very true because I grew up in a very you know white collar uh, family that the first time I ever used a drill was to drill through a skull. As a <laughs> I resident. love and that. So
1: that's a great story. I actually.
0: never used <laughs> a, a drill before that, and that's how I learned. <laughs> and then I, and once I figured it out, I went home and put up some cabinets, and I was like, "Wow, a new skill! This is great." Uh,
1: you had to get yeah, you know, be a surgeon to. <laughs> You know, well, people say it's not neurosurgery, but yeah, I mean, Uh just the, I have a lot of respect for trades work and how much. That leads
0: me to believe though and ask the question, do people in trades work, people who are, you know, more blue collar, so to speak, do they, are they mentally healthier? Are they, do we have any data on that, uh, any correlation with that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. you know, there, there is some research showing how individuals who have hobbies seem to be less likely to experience depression, like knitting or woodworking. Um, I haven't seen a very, you can be, I haven't seen a um, definitive study where they, there's so much to control for, because you know, you've got salary differences and yeah. such. But um, one uh, an author who is local here? I'm in Richmond, Virginia. But Matt Crawford, he wrote the book um, "Shop Class as Soul so I'll give him a yeah, <laughs> dig there. Um,
0: right, and we'll put a link to that too because that
1: yeah. Was so he writes about the um, how much more challenging the trade work is for the brain as opposed to the white collar work. He's a political philosopher who worked in a think tank, and he said he didn't he quit that because he didn't use his brain enough, and now he has a motorcycle repair shop, and he talks about how much more engaging that is. You can't just BS your weight. They literally have to drive that thing off the a lot. So yeah. you have to problem solve. It's very engaging. Um, so I think we could. We need more of those studies looking at different types. The careers are changing so much, and then you know controlling for the lifestyle as far as the salary and such. But theoretically, based on my research, if you have a sense of control, it's meaningful work. You're learning. I think that's better than sitting somewhere all stressed, not yeah, not yeah, being very right. physically active.
0: Right. <laughs> so talk about the trust fund rats because i uh, I think that's uh, interesting, uh, interesting, uh, you know, taking that
1: little little rodent stuff. twist yeah, yeah. on that. so so I am being a behavioral neuroscientist. I do laboratory work with rodents, and so I was trying to simulate some of these ideas. So I wanted to send my rats to work, um so. They go out in an arena, just five or 10 minutes a day. And my worker rats, which I call my contingent trained rats, they learn that if they see a mound of this bedding that is in a lab, they just dig just simple little movements. And there are pieces of fruit leaf, And that's the currency, the money wow. uh, for the rats in the, in the lab. So I have the worker group that goes out every day and dig, they dig up for little fruit loop pieces. And they've earned it and they eat it. And then they go back to their cage. And then I have the control group same age as these animals and they're they're we call it yoked so they're they're put in the arena for the same period of time but instead of digging up the fruit loops i just give them the same number that their rat buddy the yoked buddy got so they dug up three they get the three right in the corner regardless of what they do so they're the non-contingent or the trust fund rats yeah they get their rewards regardless um and so when we do that training for four to five weeks five to six weeks. And then we look at brain areas. So we see when we challenge those rats that our worker rats have lower stress hormone levels. They have a higher um, adrenal hormone, DHEA, that you might have heard about that seems to provide a buffer against that. Um, They have uh, other areas of the brain that seem to be more activated and more neuroplasticity. Um, And behaviorally, for example, we give them a swim challenge and rats. They're great swimmers, but they don't like it. they're more likely to die. I mean, it's just they've never been in water, but they dive like little scuba rat divers to explore. It's just so smart and bold and uh, and, and such a controlled response. So, um, and they also, if we give them another challenge to get a fruit loop and a little problem-solving task, they'll persist longer as if they have the confidence that they can get it with a little cat bomb that can't really reach through it. Um, so they have this persistence and boldness and uh, a healthier stress response just from, making that connection that we talk action, dig up, get the fruit loop, a sense of control, we think in their, in their life.
0: So the, the question then, and I, I think, um, you know, just, just sort of going off of, uh, I think you said Matthew Crawford, right? Isn't that, uh, his name, the, the one the the guy who, with the motorcycle shop, what was his name?
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Matt Crawford. Matt
0: Crawford. <laughs> um, he was able to do this. And I think I remember him saying, you know, you, you know physically felt a lot better he wasn't falling asleep all the time like he used to in his old work
1: right he was in the c v s Sunday morning <laughs> I <Right, laughs> forgot right. to mention that yeah
0: and <laughs> and the um the question I have is with your rats, if you take your trust fund rats and put them to work do you do do they then uh end up with changes in 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 their hormones that that are more healthy or or are they kind of pretty much pretty much screwed?
1: Well, that's a great question, but we haven't done that study. My guess is, because I don't think it's ever too late to work that they would adjust to that, but you're asking a question of their critical periods. And having gone through this time where they unlearned the contingencies or learned that maybe there wasn't, it, it would probably take them learner, longer to learn the contingencies, um, but hopefully they would come on board. But that's a great question. We just haven't, we usually look at the, you know, the, their responses after this five week, uh, training, but I'll have to jot that one down. That's a good, good well, the, one. The
0: reason I ask of course is, you know, I mean, uh, to the extent that, uh, a lot of us are, uh, sort of trust fund rats out there right now, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we are mm-hmm. um, and I'm, I'm not talking about people who aren't working. There's certainly people who are working, but you know, we outsource a, a lot of things. Uh, you know, um, I told you about my drill thing and my mm-hmm. surgery stuff. I don't really do it anymore. Um, And and I think there's a lot of people who, for the most part, probably um some people who are listening to this are thinking right now, gosh, you know, I'm I'm sitting behind a computer all day and pushing buttons and I'm doing really, you know, specialized hard work and actually this is resonating with me. I wonder if I change my behavior now, would that would that change my physiology, my neurophysiology? And um that's, that's kind of what I'm uh, yeah. I was thinking
1: well in, instead of just making you go back to be a worker rat, because we all kind of are worker rats and sure. we do outsource um, but just adding something physical to your day to your plate something you enjoy right gardening woodwork cleaning I, d- I don't know um, knitting uh, there is some research with knitting and I haven't I talked in the book about how doctors used to prescribe knitting to women who they saw as overwrought with anxiety. Yeah. They saw something about yeah. that calming behavior. Yeah. So adding that behavior, like a behavior, you know, you don't yeah. take drugs all day long. You just add. So adding that, um, you know, looking at our complete lifestyle, I'll talk about in the book, adding that behavior, but also the environment, natural environment uh, that we evolved in having a, you may know from your medical career that having a plant in a hospital room, uh, people request lower doses of morphine. Um, so we can certainly influence our brain, like I said, until the day we die. So if, if we have a job that even we enjoy that's not very physical or if I'm writing all day, I don't see an output and it's important to see this, this product of our work. And we don't always see that in some of our you know, writing or thinking and reading. Uh, but if we go home and we see a meal uh, that we've prepared or something that reminds me you know, that we're gaining a sense of control. So I think yeah. we can have like lifestyle supplements yeah. <laughs> for the well, behavior pseudicals to the
0: extent that I think for a surgery, I always sort of knocked it up uh, on the, you know, as as the idea was that I could start something and finish something and it, it was a mm-hmm. task that was completed. And, right. you know, a lot of the things that I work on now are okay. Will we, you know, we, we identify a good investment and the, you know, we will, we won't, you know, see the the result of this for years. So, or.
1: Yeah. And that's hard for the brain because we are kind of geared to see this outcome, the long-term outcomes. We do have all this this fancy brain to help us look at these long-term investments and outcomes, but we still need something along the way to remind us that we have some control in our lives. So it could be something rather simple.
0: Is be is be, is behavior psychicals? Is there a type of uh you know? I mean, I know you made that up, but is there a? Because I mean, if there's not, I think you've got a, a great business opportunity there. But. But do you, is there, is there support like that out there for, I mean, like, you know, therapies and things like that, that aren't just for people sitting in hospitals or, I mean, I remember hearing, cause I, you know, I trained in San, at UC San Francisco and I was in San Francisco and there was like, you know, these people who are on their phones all the time and they were going to. Uh, Silicon Valley, they were going to camps where they just checked in their phone and just they did stuff like they did when they were, you know, (laughs) uh, uh, probably when they were 12 years old and there was no internet. Um, Is there things like that out there that are catering to this right now, these ideas?
1: Well, I mean, on on the treatment side, yes, we've had them in psychology, like cognitive behavioral therapy, where you're focusing on the behavior, changing your behavior. Yes, and we have this in our society called exercise and going to the gym. <laughs> I'm just calling it behavior That's one. It's not really effort based rewards like I talk about, but yeah. you're changing your neurochemistry when in wonderful ways yeah. when you exercise, yeah. Although I feel or when like you a rat- are yeah. out on a date, you're changing the oxytocin, or when you're eating, you've got yeah. dopamine. So right. everything we do, we're changing these right. neurochemistry. The neurochemistry, but um, but maybe the close something like I, I was noticing that this uh, uh, app calm you know meditation where people yeah. pay to have someone tell them to relax <laughs> uh that's yeah. kind of getting in I'm, my rats right. don't really meditate know, but um yeah, yeah I, for some reason we like to pay someone to tell us how to act right, right. Exactly. <laughs> and I guess I'm more you know trying to just say you can do it on your own just yeah. do it but yeah. um but in order to get people to do it I almost have to the reason I call it behavior behaviorceuticals is to make it sound like it's something fancier yeah. than just doing, you know, engaging in behavior. Well, you and we can talk about dosing that. your behavior and having <laughs> withdrawal from the behavior. We like to think of medicine and surgery as the way to heal ourselves, not right. through the behavior. So I'm trying to just um, enhance or start the conversation about how we can change some of these things through our behavior.
0: I think you should trademark that. Um, <laughs> I
1: think it's- Maybe him. I should. I yeah. Should. You know, scientists are not sometimes good entrepreneurs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, the book just came out, it's called well-grounded, uh, the neurobiology of rational decisions. Um, you want to talk a little bit about some of the things in there that maybe we haven't discussed some of the topics that are, you know, that, that that are going to be covered for people who might be interested.
1: Yeah. So, um, so my work with these, uh, Contingent train rats, the worker rats and the trust fund rats are kind of a a basis of this and how important it is for our brain to see these outcomes. And another aspect, when I was was finishing writing a textbook, (laughs) I'm very nerdy, writing a behavioral neuroscience textbook, Um, and when I was writing the learning chapter, I really got interested in um, just thinking more about what a brain does and how it does it in its best way other than keeping us breathing and and, uh, consciously aware and kind of stockpiling these experiences is so important and if that's important anything we do that distorts our knowledge of you know the effect that we have and our interactions with the environment is going to be very harmful to us so uh psychoactive drugs drinking things that, that dilute uh, the authenticity and distort our reality is not good for the brain. That's toxic to the brain, not knowing that it, you did something and you can't, <laughs> we're hearing this in the news a lot. If you black out, you don't know what the outcome was for yeah. that uh, yeah. particular response. Yeah. You're gonna be more likely to do that again. You did not learn from that. There was no contingent calculation. I'll talk about our brain as a contingency calculator. It is making all these calculations, if I um, you know, eat this, this will happen, or this will be good, or I'll gain weight, or this. So you're calculating this. So psychoactive drugs, a life of privilege, you know, having yes people around you always agreeing with you is not giving you an authentic life experience either. And, and a big part of the book, and it was the title, but my editors thought otherwise, uh, is, is we create a brain bubble with just like the housing real estate bubble, that. when uh, yeah. the value is distorted and you buy into that. And then when you find out, oh my goodness, I'm not as good as I thought I was because everyone was telling me this, you have a market a crash, market crash. But I think you can have an emotional crash as well as you if you have been told or you've been living, thinking one perspective, but it wasn't the truth. So anything that distorts our reality, privilege, poverty, Uh, Drugs, political uh, perspectives, religion, Uh, all those may be good in some ways, but if they are are go to an excess, the brain is losing its ability to do what it does best, keeping us alive, making above and beyond just keeping us breathing, Um, but making the best decisions to get our resources, our happiness, our meaningful life, everything that you like we talk about on, on this show.
0: Right. Uh, where else can we learn about your work, uh, and, uh, you know, you know, websites, et cetera.
1: Yeah. So I have, uh, Kelly Lambert lab.com, uh, talks about some of their our research. I have always worked with undergraduate students. So uh, I'm very much the professor and, and mentor, hopefully uh, to the students. So we'll talk about, um, so I have some of our research. We're getting into, the ultimate nature's entrepreneurs, raccoons, <laughs> yeah. uh, and they're just great with their four paws and hands. Um, and then uh, this this book has a good bit, well grounded, that just came out last week. Um, and I'm always happy to uh, my uh, my email address is on my website address. Uh, I like hearing from people, hearing stories. Our brains also evolve to react to a great story. And so uh, I like to incorporate those into my writing and teaching and research ideas too. You gave me one about reversing, the going from the trust fund to the worker, So You better put me on that paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, again, thanks so much for being uh, on the show, Kelly. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: We'll be right back. Uh, welcome back, everybody. So hopefully you enjoyed that show. I think it's a fascinating topic and it's also pretty obvious when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, not on the surface. You hear this and you're like, oh, that's so cool. Uh, but ultimately what we're saying here is, remember, we all learn by trying and making mistakes, right? That's why you know, I lost so much money on my first real estate deal but then never made those mistakes again. It applies to everything, including investing. The key here is that the experience itself is what teaches you. Our brains work like a series of, positive and negative reinforcement signals, you know, no different than coding in a computer. Uh, And in some ways, if we, uh, you know, and if we don't actually try things out, we actually never really learn them, right? Uh, As a surgeon, uh, I could read a text, but that wouldn't make my hands do what they were supposed to do. I had to go out and do it. And the same thing goes for investing. Lots of people just, you know, listen to shows like mine, but they sit on the sidelines, you know? I mean, and that's okay, but understand that you're a groupie. It's a, there's a lot of real estate investing groupies out there. There's a lot of investing groupies in general who love the idea of all the things that we're talking about, but um, all their money's sitting with a financial advisor anyway. Why is that? I mean, listen, you got to start, you got to go out there and, and and start with movement, physical movement, in the direction, uh, of what you if you, of what you want to have happen in your life. And, and, and so I would highly encourage you to do that again. Um, and that could be, that could mean going on and, uh, and looking, going out and looking at assets to buy on your own. You know, if you want to go out and buy some single family homes or, or apartment buildings or whatever, or if you're an accredited investor, um, which, uh, you know, is again, defined by the 200,000, uh, per year or 300,000, uh, per year of filing jointly, um, income rules or net worth of $1 million outside of your personal income. If you qualify that by with those things, you could go to investor club and, uh, uh join investor club on wealthformula.com and start looking at deals, uh, with a bunch of like-minded people. Again, I'm just telling you, either way, uh, if you never shoot, right? This is my old, I used to play hockey. My coach used to say, if you never shoot, you'll never score. That's exactly right. If you never shoot, you'll never score, so get to work. Um, Make sure you go to wealthformula.com. By the way, if you like this show, uh, give us a review. You can click there. It's easy to do. Give me a five-star review if you think I deserve it because that's how we keep getting These fantastic guests on. Uh, That's it for me this week. Uh, This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.